Well, hello. In this um, podcast, I'm going to do something slightly different to what I've been doing uh, before. So if you were hoping for um, a story about wildlife photography, um, I apologize <laughs> because this is about something different. So I thought in this particular podcast, I'd just talk a little bit about what it was like to go down in um, a small submarine and um, go down to the wreck of the Titanic. Now, if you don't know, the Titanic is about two and a half miles deep underwater so um, that's quite a long distance obviously to, to go down in a submarine. Now I went um, in the sub in 2001, in July 2001, so um, in fact almost exactly 20 years ago from uh, uh, when I'm recording this and I, th I thought I'd just share some of what it was like, just sort of highlights I guess because you, you can imagine there was quite a bit to it. So basically I met a Russian ship, the Academic Keldish, which was built by the Soviets, the Soviet era, with the two Mir submarines. And um, the ship and the Mirs were, were um, designed by one of the guys who's actually on the crew. And I believe the, the subs were built in Finland. And at the time, there were only five manned submersibles, if you like, that were capable of diving down to the Titanic. So at the time, there were the two Mirs, the two Russian submarines. There was um, Alvin, which is uh, which operates out of the Woods Hole Oceanographic Institute in Massachusetts. So that was the submarine that Bob Ballard was using when he discovered the the wreck uh, back in the uh, I think it was late eighties. Now, a bit of a, uh, just trying to think back to when that was. There was a French uh, submersible called the Nortil, which had been doing a lot of the salvage work so there was a salvage agreement and uh, whereby uh, people operating the Nortil could go down to the bottom of the uh, the North Atlantic and recover items from the wreck of the Titanic so there had been I think it was about 5,000 items so an awful lot of things uh, had been recovered from the uh, the wreck by the time I went down and then the final submarine was uh, a Japanese submarine. Now, so we met the, the Keldish. And the thing about the Keldish as well, having been designed as a scientific research vessel in the Soviet era, um, in many cases, when it went into port, because of it being Soviet, the crew weren't allowed um, on shore. So it meant that it was actually reasonably well appointed for a research ship. So it had a really nice... Um, um, a meeting room that we used to use a lot for briefings and looking at um, high-definition video uh, that had been shot by um, one of the submarines while we were there. Uh, they had a, a nice volleyball court on um, the, the kind of uh, deck towards the back where we would go and um, uh, watch the submarines being launched. So it was, it was well appointed. And then for, for the, those of us who were going, so there were uh, there was myself, there was a guy called Lyle, a Texan guy, and then um, two couples. So uh, the way the submarines are set up, uh, Mir 1 and Mir 2, they are both three-person subs. So the um, pilot will be, I was going to say sitting, but they're not. They're kind of more on their knees in the middle of the submarine in front of a big, a larger porthole, uh, which is in the middle, sort of facing forward and down. And then passengers are on short benches either side so I'm I'm a, uh, not the tallest person you've got to meet so I'm about five foot seven about 1.7 meters and uh, I couldn't lie straight out on the bench because 
inside the sub, you've got all sorts of other gear. So there's radio uh, equipment there, so we could stay in contact with the surface. Obviously, there was sonar equipment, so we could see what, what was around us, and um, various other things. So um, we had air purification systems in there. We had emergency equipment. Um, the um, emergency gear to get us up was actually under a panel in the center of the submarine. So in front of the pilot, there was a control panel there with joysticks because the um, the way the Mirs steered, they had two small propellers uh, on either side, about halfway along the side of the sub, and those could rotate uh, up and down. And then at the back, there was a large propeller which co could um, steer from side to side. So between them, we had... Um, you know, three-dimensional movement, which obviously is useful in a submarine. So the um, the main controls were in the centre, and that was obviously where the pilot was. But underneath that, if you lifted that panel up, there was all of the emergency gear, and that would jettison um, these nickel, uh, these uh, I think they were lead weights. So another unusual thing about the um, the Mears, the other submarines that I've mentioned, what they would do, they would use ballast obviously to get them down. But once they were um, on the as far down as they wanted to go and they wanted to come back up, they would actually jettison these, um, uh, I think they're nickel pallet, pellets, but anyway, it's basically they would drop weights, so jettison weights out of the submarine and the submarine would go up. The Mears didn't do that, and I kind of like that actually because it just seems such a waste of um, all of this, this material. So what the Mears would do to become positively buoyant so that they began to float was to pump out ballast tanks. So... Now, at that depth, I think the pressure was 5,000 pounds per square inch, but I might have got that wrong. I mean, it's a huge pressure, and you can't go outside at that depth. You'd be crushed in a moment. You just wouldn't know. And also, uh, the danger to us was if, if the, uh, the pressure sphere we were in, so it's a circular pressure sphere of about three metres at sea level, stayed at sea level, so we didn't have to depressurize. And um, the rest of the sub was kind of built around it with all the, the motors and the manoeuvring gear and all the rest of it. If that got punctured at that depth, the, the the whole thing would have just imploded. There'd been an explosion and an implosion, and uh, we we would have been dead before we knew there was even a problem. So it was that that sort of a situation down there. So just imagine the pressure that those pumps are having to push against to pump water out to make the sub positively buoyant and then then go back up. So that was the standard way of getting up. But what we could do, and this was the the emergency controls, we could drop. Um, weight ballast, so that was one option. There was a huge battery pack underneath the submarine as well, which gave us our power, and that could be jettisoned. Uh, the um, propellers on either side could also be jettisoned, so if we were trapped, if we got caught up in something down there, we could actually just jettison the uh, those external propellers so that we could then float free. So that was kind of the the setup there. Now, the way it worked, we met the ship in St. John's in Newfoundland and uh, then headed off uh, because it was about a day and a half um, travel to get to the wreck site where we dropped um, sonar boys so that we could, because we had the GPS location and then we were dropping sonar boys down to help us uh, locate and uh, navigate on the, uh, on the ocean floor there. And what they did while we were basically, once we'd got to the site, they'd actually put us in the submarines while we were still on deck. So the submarines are on the port side of the ship and they are under these covers which kind of hinge up. And so it's like a garage thing over the sub, but it hinges up 
towards the center of the ship, exposing the submarine. And then the submarine is lifted up by a crane, swung overboard, and then put into the uh, the ocean. And there's um, a, a smaller boat that's also deployed, and that is used that attaches a line to the sub, tows it away from the Keldish, and then disconnects from the submarine, and then that's where the submarine will go down. So, um, all, so obviously all of that happens. Now, what they did with us, they got us to climb inside the submarines and we closed the hatch. So you enter the Mears from the top. So that means um, you climb a ladder which goes over the front of the submarine. You kind of sit up there, take your shoes off um, before you get inside, and then you climb down an internal ladder to go inside the sub. Um, they close the hatch, that internal ladder then swings up, so it's kind of across the hatch and like on the, the, the above you. And then you're inside. And the purpose of that was to take us through some of the drill, what to do if something went wrong, and we went through all the emergency procedures. But also I think it was just to make sure nobody freaked out because if you if you are claustrophobic, it's quite a small um, environment to be in. And um, obviously it's much better to have a, a kind of a freaking out situation when you're on sat on the deck rather than on the bottom of the ocean where you're with the normal ascent two and a half hours away from getting back to the surface. So that, that was essentially the drill. And as I've said, once we had launched, it took us two and a half hours. So the, the sub descends at about one mile an hour. So it's quite gentle. So the sub is gradually adjusting to the pressure all the way down. And so two and a half hours down, we actually were on the bottom of the ocean going around the Titanic for about six hours and then another two and a half hours going back up. So we were out early in the, the day. So Mir 1 launched first, and we were out, I think it was about 8.39ish, something like that, but certainly no later than 9. And um, so we got on board, uh, locked everything up, swung off, and, and we were sort of dropped into the ocean, towed out away from the Keldish, disconnected from the, the, the towboat, and then we, um, we began to submerge once everyone was happy that everything was working. And that was then a gentle two and a half hour descent. So what happens is, first of all, that you lose the light pretty early on. Um, I do have a notebook that I was keeping, but unfortunately it's not handy, of course. And um, you lose the light after about 100 to, between 100 and 300 meters, it gets, the light disappears very rapidly. So once you get below about 300 meters, below the surface, you are, or you know, 300 feet, seems sort of, you know, roughly it's good enough. So you're in darkness then, and you, you're in total darkness for most of the dive. Now, the mirrors um, themselves have internal lights, and then they also have external lights. So there are external lights which are on, a, on boom arms that can kind of swing out in front of the sub, so they get really good illumination. Um, so that you know, you may have already seen these submarines and not realized it, because if you've watched the, um, the James Cameron movie Titanic, the one with um, Kate Winslet in it, and um, uh, what's his name, DiCaprio, um, that ship is the academic Keldish. Now, the only thing that isn't right about it is the, the helicopter deck. It doesn't actually have a helicopter deck. That was just put on, that was a cardboard thing, I think, put on for the movie. But that ship and those two submarines that they show at the beginning where they go down, those are the Mears. And Anatoly, in fact, who's the guy who designed the, um, the Mears, it features in the, the movie. He's the one who um, you see him inside one of the uh, submarines. And then when they open the, I don't know if you remember the scene where they open the safe and they find it's empty, that's he's the guy who says, oh, it's empty, or 
something along those lines in his Russian accent. But Anatoly was our pilot in uh, Mir One. So we went down, and in fact, um, you know, you obviously you're talking on the way down, so we're just looking outside. And there's not a lot to see, but occasionally we'd see these animals that were bioluminescing, and that, the motion of us going down through the ocean, I believe, was causing them to bioluminesce. And um, it was kind of weird because they were just a, a sort of luminescent shape out there in the water, in the darkness, but there was no way of sighting them because we didn't know how far away they were, so there was no way of knowing exactly how big they were. Um, on our voyage, we also had some research guides and a guy from NOAA, which is like the Australian NASA, uh, but for the oceans. And the two research guys uh, were doing some research with um, high-definition video that they were experimenting with this back in 2001. So these days, I guess it'd be pretty ordinary video. And um, but they were very interested in what we could see. So I, I just, I think at least one was a marine biologist. So I just jotted down some observations while we, while we were on our way down and Anatoly turned the lights out, um, all of the lights except some sort of red emergency lighting that stayed on inside so that we could have a clearer look of what was outside the uh, submarine. So we did that on the, on the journey down. And there's uh, some conversation with the, um, with the surface while we were on our way down. And then as we started getting closer to the bottom, we began to pick up the, the bottom on our sonar. And um, so I remember looking out of my porthole. So on the way down, I think on the way down, I was actually on the starboard side. And um, I was looking out and looking out, and it was all dark below me. And then all of a sudden, this very pale, beigey kind of surface appeared below us. And that was the ocean floor, which looks like um, a very soft sort of mud dust. It had some dust in it. Well, it wouldn't be dust in the ocean, obviously, but it's there's sediment there that does um, come up that you disturb. But the, um, the floor basically appeared below us, and then we kind of got down there onto that level. And what happens down there is that there's, um, there's stuff in the water, uh, and, and particularly we, we saw it when we were down and we'd stopped moving in a, a kind of vertically. And it was a little bit like a fine snow, but it obviously wasn't snow. What it was was just um, organic material that was gradually drifting down. So things were dying and decaying in the, uh, the higher levels of the water. And this stuff was gradually drifting down and would eventually land on the, the bottom of the ocean. And chatting to the guys in the ship afterwards, um, I learned that, that there seems to be a sort of four or five day cycle where you get sort of a heavy drop of it and then it, it, it eases out until you get very little and then it sort of picks up again. So we were partway through that cycle when we were down there. So um, so anyway, there, there you go. We, we're... Um, sort of down in the submarine and um, on the, uh, uh, the the bottom of the North Atlantic. And um, we had sonar contact. We uh, could see on, because we can see on the screen um, the shape of what the sonar is picking up and we could see the bow section of the Titanic. So we started moving towards it and um, I'm looking out of my window and all I can see is this gray material. And um, then all of a sudden this huge shape appeared coming out of the mud and because uh, I'm like to think of myself as not the dumbest person in the room. I said, well, I think that's the ship. So that was the the, the actual side of the bow, just as it, and we were right on um, 
the ground level, if you like, and the ship was towering above us, what was left of the ship. And of course, a lot of the bow section is buried because it, when the ship broke in two on the surface, the bow section sort of planed down and would have picked up speed because of the, obviously it's, it's designed to cut through the water. And when it did hit the, um, this soft mud, in the on the um the on the ocean floor it kind of pl- it kind of buried itself into it so the area of the um ship which was on the starboard side of the titanic so we actually came up on the port side uh on the the starboard side was what was damaged and nobody has ever been able to see the actual damage that was caused because, because it's all buried under this mud so the 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 bow is actually quite deeply buried so um entirely unlikely anyone will ever get down there to see that so um yeah, there was the ship. So the the, I guess the things to say about that. I mean, obviously it was amazing being near the the ship and having that experience. Um, the other thing was that you you may or may not be aware that the ship is gradually um, deteriorating. So uh, at that stage, so in two thousand and one, the the ship had sunk in uh, nineteen twelve. So. 2001 obviously we're now looking at what 87 years later so um you know a good deal of time had passed and what had happened was all of the wood had gone so when we were because uh, we, we kind of drove around and, and went uh, sort of up the side of the um the bow we got to the um the front where um you know the i'm the king of the world stuff all happened in the movie we saw that um we went over the decks but the the wood that was in the decks is long gone that's all, all deteriorated away. It's probably been eaten uh, because there are a lot of microscopic animals down there. There are, there are actually fish. I saw some fish down there that I think are called soldier fish, but they, they're quite unusual. They've got very tall um, tails. The, the, the upper part of their tail is quite large. And I was in Perth Museum in um, Australia a few months later because that was where I was living at the time that I did the dive. And um, I just saw these fossil, fossil fish that they found, which look very, very similar to, in, in my to my untrained eye, let's say to what I'd seen down um, around the wreck. Um, so there are fish. There are um, you, you see the occasional crab down there. Um, there are sponges down there. So there's a lot of um, animal life down there. Uh, but the key thing is that the bacteria. So there are bacteria down there. And bear in mind, it's very cold. So it's around um, three degrees. So that was our external temperature, three degrees Celsius, and this bacteria is gradually eating the iron in the ship. So, and as that happens, then the weight of the superstructure, as as what's underneath it gets eaten, will gradually collapse. So, it's I guess I see different estimates for how long the ship will be recognisable. Maybe there's another twenty five years left, um, but it's that sort of order. So, it's definitely uh, more than halfway through that period of of being. Um, Eaten, I guess, to a point where it will just collapse on itself and will be just a, you know, a pile of a pile of wreckage that's just barely recognisable as having once been this amazing ship. So, um, yeah, you get the, the and what what this bacteria does. Um, it leaves behind um, rust, basically iron oxide, and but it, the the way it excretes it, it looks like they are. Um, it's like icicles on the side of the ship, but made in, in orange. So they're referred to as rusticles. And we did actually knock one or two of them. And, and what happens there is that you are instantly engulfed in a, this orange cloud and you can't see a thing. And we were having a, Anatoly was having to back us off 
um, from the ship until we could get out of it and then kind of reacquire the, the bow section on the sonar because this stuff would go a fair distance and then we could kind of go back in and have another look. So the, um, the rustical aspect is, is certainly um, a big part of it. So um, what I'm going to do, I'm probably going to wind this up for now. So we'll refer to this as part one of <laughs> visiting the Titanic. And um, in the next podcast, I'll share a bit more about what it was like to be down on the ocean, what it was like when we saw the second mirror, which launched half an hour after us, and we could hear the radio chatter, so we knew it had gone. And um, yeah, then what it was like to be recovered and the, the sort of um, 20,000 leagues under the sea type experience of, um, excuse me, of being recovered by the, uh, the mothership. So on that note, I think I will leave it there. And I'll talk a bit more about the wildlife down there as well in the, in the next part. So have a great time, whatever you're doing. And um, I look forward to speaking to you again um, on, uh, on the next web uh, podcast. Okay, have a great day. Bye for now. Just before I go, I want to let you know that there's a couple of ways you can support me if you feel so inclined. Uh, with the podcast, Buzzsprout, which is the, um, the platform I use for all of my podcasts, they have a subscription model. So if you feel that you would like to subscribe, a few dollars, a few euros, whatever, um, to the podcast, that would be much appreciated. The other option is my Patreon membership. So if you'd like to become a patron, and that starts at the price of a cup of coffee every month, you'll get access to exclusive material, behind-the-scenes material, photography tips, all this kind of stuff, depending on which tier you're at. So there is some information available through my website and um, also on the, uh, uh, the written text to go with this podcast. So if you choose either one, thank you so much in advance. And whether or not you do, I hope you uh, continue to enjoy the podcast and let other people know about them. Thank you very much. Bye for now. 